This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Tuesday. Daphne. One week. One week. Official now. <laughs> um, we're not going to waste too much time. We're going to mm-hmm. remind everybody that after the test, we will be off for two weeks. We will be back on April 11th uh, with brand new content and a revamped format so that we can actually do more interesting things now that we don't have the pressure taking the boards. Um, and we'll we'll tell you more about it uh, during that two-week hiatus. But uh, yeah, don't unsubscribe, don't go away, and uh, I think it will be a lot of fun. If you want to unsubscribe, please go ahead. I mean, <laughs> do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. But uh, we just want to say that uh, there's going to be a hiatus, but we will be back. On, yeah, we got uh, more good stuff coming. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's really it. Um, and we'll keep reminding every day so that whoever's listening and misses an episode doesn't get miss. Uh, misdirected when it comes to what's happening next. Okay. So we're doing stats questions today, correct? Mm-hmm. And you ask me first. Yeah. So this chapter is entitled pharmacology and statistics. So that's where the stats questions are hiding if you haven't found them yet. Um, but uh, we're going to do question one. The major purpose of random assignment in a clinical trial is to A, ensure that the study groups have uh, comparable baseline characteristics, B, facilitate double blinding, C, facilitate the measurement of outcome variables, D, help ensure that study subjects are representative of the general population, or E, reduce selection bias in the allocation of treatment. Okay. Um, Random assignment uh, really has to do with avoiding selection bias and all the other choices in the question, ensuring that the study groups have comparable baseline characteristics, like that's inclusion criteria. Like you have to you have to actually control over that. Facilitate double blinding, not really. I mean, double blinding is up to the investigator to make sure it's done properly. Facilitate the measurement of outcome variables. That doesn't seem um, connected. And then help ensure that study subjects are representative of the general population. Another, another where, no, if you want your subject to be representative of the general population, you do have to to look at your inclusion criteria and, and exclusion criteria and make sure that you, you have a representative sample. So my answer was E, to um, to reduce selection bias in the allocation of treatment. Yeah, I, th- I actually thought this was a tricky question. You just have to know that that is why we do random assignment. Um, so a reminder about randomized controlled trials, um, they're thought to be the gold standard because um, they are... Uh, better than other me- other methods in estimating inter- interventions' true effect. Um, the most common study designs, like pre-post studies and comparison groups, um, may not be done with careful matching, and so we have to be careful about uh, the conclusions we take uh, from them. And then an RCT are studies that try to measure an intervention's effect by randomly assigning individuals or groups of individuals to an intervention or to a control group. And this random assignment allows researchers to assess whether the intervention itself, as opposed to other factors, caused the observed outcomes. Specifically, uh, random assignment uh, of a large number of individuals into either group 
ensures to a high degree of confidence that there are no systematic differences between the groups in any characteristics, um, except one, that some are in the intervention group and some are in the control group, which is why I think some people may have answered um, like A, ensuring that there were comparable baseline characteristics. Um, but assuming hmm. that the RCT is undertaken appropriately, um, the resulting difference in outcomes between the two groups can confidently be attributed to the intervention and not to other factors. So we use random assignment to reduce selection bias in the allocation of treatment. I see. Okay. Um, let me see. Okay, I'm next. Mm -hmm. um, question three. In a small pilot study, the data from 12 neonates who had a previous diagnosis of necrotizing enterocolitis was compared with the data of 12 neonates without NEC. The study was focused primarily on determining if the use of probiotics was associated with NEC. Each neonate with NEC was matched by age, race, weight, and comorbidities with a neonate without NEC. What type of study design is this? Choice A, it's a case control study. Choice B, a concurrent cohort study. Choice C, a cross-sectional study. Choice D, randomized control trial. Choice D, retrospective cohort study. Okay. So the only ways I can answer this, like we, they picked babies who have neck. So they have cases of disease. And then they found a second group uh, that did not have neck. So they found controls for those babies. Um, so that's why it's a case control A. Okay. Um, yeah, very good. So this study describes a case control study whereby study groups are defined by their disease um, status, by their disease status, I'm sorry. And there is a comparison of risk between individuals with and without a disease of interest. This type of study is rapid, inexpensive, and ideal for rare diseases or diseases with a long latency period. There are several weaknesses of this type of study, including recall bias, reporting bias, selection bias, inefficient for, inefficient, inefficient for rare exposures and temporal relationship that may be difficult to establish. So when we're looking at the other answer choices, um, I think it's important to understand what cohort studies are because choice B was concurrent cohort study. Choice E was retrospective cohort study. And a cohort study is basically you're taking two groups of people, some of them that are being going to be exposed and some of them that are not going to be exposed, right? So the typical mm -hmm. example that in stat courses we give are smokers versus non-smokers and you see what the effect of cigarette smoking are. So these are cohort studies. You take two groups of people with different uh, exposure. Mm -hmm. um, now, the and the and you told us about um, kind of the pros and cons of using a cohort, a case control study. They're basically the opposite for R right for so cohort. So what's interesting is that for the case control, you, you want to know that what differentiates the subjects are their disease. Mm -hmm. In the cohort studies, it's their exposure. Mm -hmm. they, they may develop the disease, they may not. That's the whole point of the cohort. Now, retrospective cohort versus concurrent cohort, they're pretty much the same type of study. One of them is done prospectively, the other one is done retrospectively, fine. In terms of cross-sectional studies, that means that those groups sort of existed in nature. <laughs> Um, but they never were put together in a, in a trial. But at some point, you identify them and you just examine 
their exposure, their incidence, everything at one time point. You do a cross-section as if you were, mm -hmm. right? So that's a cross-sectional. And then a randomized control trial, we know where that is, right? I mean, we just take two groups, uh, randomize people to an intervention. Um, yeah, okay. Um, that's it. That's all I have for this question. Okay. Okay. Um, stats question 18. All of the following approaches can improve the statistical power of a trial except A, decreasing the standard deviation of outcome measurement, B, increasing the effect size, C, increasing the heterogeneity of the sample, D, increasing the sample size, or E, increasing the type 1 error rate. Can you so hear the dog, dog barking? Yeah, the dog and I had an agreement that the question, the answer to which he doesn't bark <laughs> is the right one. And if you noticed... <laughs> Your dog, she didn't, it's a she, right? Yeah. Uh, she didn't bark at question answer C, increasing the heterogeneity of the sample. So that's, uh, that's, the, that's right the correct. Answer. It's like, you know, remember the, the who wants to be a millionaire where the guy was coughing in the audience to like help the... No. No, there I was like a famous thing that. where you know, who wants to be a millionaire? Somebody was cheating and they were like coughing. And depending on how many coughs, the number of, and, and if, whether they coughed or not, that was the right answer. Um, the guy it's won. like and a bad sitcom. <laughs> So in the case of um, in the case of the statistical power, right? The the power is the ability. So in a study, you create the null hypothesis. The null hypothesis is basically the opposite of what you want to find. You're saying I think two things are correlated. There's an association. Good luck to you if you want to prove causation. But you're saying they're connected. And then the goal of the study is your ability to reject the null hypothesis. And the null hypothesis usually states that there's nothing in correlating the two things you're studying. So the goal of the study is to reject the null hypothesis and say, um, and, and so that's how you, you build your study. The power of the study is how likely you are to reject the null hypothesis when it is indeed false. So you would want to do a lot of different things to make sure that uh, your, your study is well-powered. Decreasing the standard deviation of outcomes makes sense. Increasing the effect size makes sense. Increasing the sample size makes sense. And increasing the type 1 error rate is something that we... Um, we had is something we had to discuss, Daphne and I, because it's it's kind of confusing. But basically, what it means is if you're increasing the if you're using a p of zero point zero five to say that this is statistically significant, meaning you're saying to the reader, I'm gonna assume that maybe five percent. There's a five percent chance that all of the things I've done in my study are due to just luck. And if you increase that, and you say, well, I'm gonna accept twenty percent uh, as as the, mm -hmm. and you say, I'm gonna say p equals zero point two then obviously your study uh, will gain in power because you're much more likely to find uh, significance and reject the, uh, reject the null hypothesis, even though that's a bit counterintuitive. So the answer is C as, uh, right? Your dog is Linda? Yeah, Linda? that's what Linda said. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe I should bring her to the test then. <laughs> <laughs> Are um, we going to test the hypothesis that when she stops right. barking, it's the right answer? <laughs> um. <laughs> So, I mean, that's right. I, I don't have much to add, but maybe just to review. So power, um, also one minus beta, it's a mathematical equation, is considered the probability of rejecting the null hypothesis when it is indeed false. Um, there are several ways to increase the statistical power when designing a study. Increasing the heterogeneity of respondents increases the standard deviation of outcome responses, leading to a decrease um, empower. Um, 
decreasing the standard deviation of the outcome will uh, increase statistical power because for a given statistical test, power is inversely related to standard deviation. So that was choice A. Um, then you can increase the sample size. Doing so doesn't change the point estimate of the outcome measure, but it does make that estimate more precise. Second, you can choose an outcome with a large effect size as it is more likely to see a difference between groups if the effect of your intervention is large. You can increase the power by increasing the type 1 error rate for your analysis. Um, the type 1 error rate is alpha. It represents the probability of rejecting the null hypothesis when it is, in fact, true. So this is traditionally set at 5%, uh, with a, so that is your p-value of 0.05. But by increasing this type 1 error rate, statistical power will correspondingly increase. Um, and you will be less likely to have a type 2 error. Yeah. So to just clarify the whole null hypothesis business, right? You want to test that smoking causes cancer. And you say the null hypothesis is that smoking does not cause cancer. And mm -hmm. the goal is that you perform the study, you do it well enough, well-powered, and then you reject the null hypothesis, which you deem to be false, right? So... Mm -hmm. um, and so, but if you reject the null hypothesis you just said when it is true, then you made a mistake. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. I think we uh, got there. Let's go. Okay. Question 24. 24E, actually. Mm -hmm. For a randomized control trial, which of the following statistical tests might you use to test the hypothesis that randomization to treatment drug reduces the likelihood of preterm delivery compared to being randomized to placebo? I'm going to say that again. It's a bit, it's a bit convoluted. For a randomized control trial, which of the following statistical tests might you use to test the hypothesis that randomization to treatment drug reduces the likelihood of preterm delivery compared to being randomized to placebo? Choice A, chi-square test. Choice B, Mann-Whitney test. Choice C, Pearson correlation. Choice D, t-test. Choice E, Wilcoxon, um, Wilcoxon rank sum test. Okay, so you have two groups, one's randomized to treatment and one's ram randomized to placebo, and you're trying to see which one reduces the likelihood of preterm delivery. The, I mean, the answer is D, right? No. It's a chi-square. Because I want to answer A, but I wrote D here. Um, <laughs> I want to answer chi-square test. I think that's the right answer. Okay. <laughs> because these are not continuous variables. Be because the chi-square is basically a two-by-two two table. It's a, right. group, a right. group is exposed, and there's an outcome. And it's right. like being exposed to this versus that gives me more chances of getting the outcome yes, no. Right? Yeah. So... The rows are exposure, the two columns are outcomes, and let's say I'm exposed to smoking, am I either getting cancer, not getting cancer, right? Yeah, so when you're talking about things like probabilities or percentages, then you would use a chi-square test. Right, and so the so chi-square is good because it's like, what was the expectation of you being exposed to an outcome um, at baseline without any uh, assignments to an intervention group? 
and how does that change once you're in, once you're exposed to an intervention, an exposure, or something like that, right? Yeah. So the chi-square test, I'm going to read you the answer, is a statistical test that assesses the goodness of fit between observed findings and the data that are expected. Um, and that's right, right? I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's what we just described. In the other choices, you had the Men-Whitney, which is uh, another name for the Wilcoxon rank sum test. So that was a bit tricky. Right, tricky. Uh, the Wilcoxon rank sum test is used to compare means when the parameter of interest is not normally distributed. So remember, the normal distribution means that your data is large enough to actually follow uh, the Gaussian distribution, like the bell-shaped curve. But if you're your data is not normally distributed, which is called skewed, meaning you have mm -hmm. a lot more data pulling on one side or the other. This is when you would rely on these on these on this test. A Pearson correlation is it was one of the other choices is not a test per se, but a mm -hmm. measure of linear relationship between two variables. So, um, yeah, you can um, yeah. And then finally, the t-test compares mean. So you have two right. sets of data. You have a long. You have basically two tables with data in there and you get the means and then you want to know if those means um, are correlated based on the parameter uh, of interest which is normally distributed so yeah sky square perfect <laughs> I'm glad. Uh, question 28 a randomized control trial was performed and outcomes were measured in the control and intervention group the researcher then analyzes the data to determine the effect of the intervention if the number needed to treat is calculated to be six which of the following is an accurate interpretation of this data? A, six people will have to be treated to see the desired effect in one person. B, for every six people who are not treated, one will have the desired outcome. C, for every six people who have the desired outcome, one will not have the desired outcome. D, the difference in the incidence of disease in the treated and the control group is six. Or E, the relative risk of the disease in the treated and control group is six. Ugh. I know. I thought you were not going to give me the choices on this one because the, <laughs> the stem was so long. So just didn't want to. Um, I, I don't find this question super hard because right. the number needed to treat is so, it's like, it's what it is. It's, it's like the definition. Yeah. So, that's so nice. <laughs> um, and so we know that um, when we have an intervention, every intervention has risks and benefits. And so the question that the number needed to treat is supposed to tell us is, how many patients do I have to put through this intervention in order to see a benefit, right? Mm -hmm. um, how many people are not going to benefit before I see actually something good happen to one patient? And so in this case, when they say that the number needed to treat is calculated to be six, it means that you would have to treat six people um, to see the desired effect in one mm -hmm. person. And obviously, for the better the intervention, um, the lower the number. Um, mm -hmm. If you tell me that intervention needs a number needed to treat of 1 million, it's kind of not great that you would have to subject a million people to an intervention before you saw one effect. So without going back into the other choices, choice A was the first one. Six people will have to be treated to see the desired effect in one person. That's my answer. Yeah, that's correct. So, I mean, that's the definition. Basically, how many people would you have to give, say, a medication to to see the desired effect in one person? Um, the number needed to treat helps uh, provide clinicians with a sense of how many patients need to receive the treatment in order to benefit just one person. 
the decision of whether a number needed to treat is low enough to mandate the intervention depends on a lot of things, including gravity of the disease, alternate interventions, and cost of therapy. But like you alluded to, if the number needed to treat is very, very high, then we may not want to treat a lot of people um, with something that may have risks um, if we don't expect to get um, met for it to help many people. If the number needed to treat is one and it works for everybody, then that's something that we would really want to use. The other thing to note is that the number needed to treat is calculated as a reciprocal of the absolute risk reduction, which is the difference in the incidence of the outcome in the treated um, and control group. Which, which, by the way, it's super easy to calculate. Like uh-huh. It sounds like such a burden but it's one of the easiest things it's like you do one subtraction and then you do one over and then you're done yeah once once you've drawn the table and you <laughs> when you you understand that equation then you're like yeah this is easy but I find that t- it took no, me a few hours this week to really hammer that and home. when you're on the test and you start drawing the table like you said and you're getting entangled and you're like god damn it like come on like like let's go already <laughs> time is ticking uh, it's it's nerve wracking, but uh, yeah, yeah. I used to take a deep breath before those kind of uh-huh. like, All right, I know this. Just one second. Let's Just walk it, it through. <laughs> it's exactly the table's right. always the same. Yeah. All right, um, and then you think of the statistician who would, from high up, watch me do this and laugh, be like, "What a simple, what a simple <laughs> man!" There, he didn't need <laughs> to draw the table for Strug- that one. Struggling on a two by two table, anyway. <laughs> Um, all right. I think, is that it for That's us today? It? All right. I'll see you tomorrow. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nicupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.